couple or three years ago, I was in Burma doing some personal retreat that I try to do every year there. And I went to report to our teacher, Sayadaw Upandita. And usually we walk in uh, very mindfully and then we take our place and do the traditional three bows to the teacher. And while I was walking in, getting down into my position and starting to do the bows, he asked me a question, which is unusual because he usually just requires us to report. And so he asked me the question in English, what is equanimity? He said very clearly, very slowly. And I, as soon as I finished my bows, I answered him. I said, equanimity is a balanced, spacious calmness of mind, which is true. And he added to that uh, this story. And he said, equanimity is like a chariot being pulled by five horses. And this chariot is going to the unconditioned or to Nibbana, or to freedom from samsara, from this realm of suffering. And this chariot, led by five horses, has as its lead, the first horse is mindfulness. And the next four horses come in pairs. The first pair behind the lead horse is faith, and wisdom. And the second pair behind that is concentration and energy. And he said that when these two pairs of horses, faith and wisdom, concentration and energy, are in balance with one another, are coordinating with one another and in balance, then the lead horse, mindfulness, has little work. And the uh, journey to freedom is smooth and swift and powerful. So I thought about this story today and previous today when I was pondering on how can I talk about equanimity in a different way than um, giving the equanimity talk, which I give usually at most of my last retreats in the past year or two. Those of you who have been to those retreats know that I changed them a little bit. They're not always exactly the same, but still, I wanted to talk about balance or equanimity in a different way. So I'd like to talk about these two pairs today, faith and wisdom, concentration and energy, mostly about those two pairs because mindfulness will have its own talk, dedication to just mindfulness alone in one of the Dharma talks. So these five um, faculties, mindfulness, faith, wisdom, concentration, and energy, are active powers. And they are already inherent within the mind. They become strong by paying attention to them and um, by actually knowing what's working, what's not, what's strong, what's weak. 
they are strong within themselves, powerful within themselves. They coordinate and canalize our natural strengths. They, they put our natural strengths like in canal, in a canal, leading to freedom. Because they are inherent energies um, in our own minds, they're not put there by anybody else, by the Buddha or any other power outside of ourselves. And what we do in our practice, actually by the simple practice of mindfulness, uh, just by practicing mindfulness, each and all of those other four energies become stronger and stronger. The Buddha points out that he does not implant them, but he asks us to harness them and to gauge what we need more of, what is uh, lacking, what is in excess. It's actually said of equanimity that with equanimity it, um, there's a kind of natural balancing of what is lacking, it adds to what is lacking, and it takes away where there is an excess. So when we use them in terms of our spiritual journey, of course we use all of those in terms of our daily life, our life in general, but when we use them in terms of our spiritual journey, they're transformed from their commonplace uh, reality to uh, a place of spiritual prominence, to a space of spiritual power. And these very same five spiritual faculties are also called the five spiritual powers. And it's said that they turn into the five spiritual powers when uh, faith, for example, is totally free of doubt, Uh, when wisdom is experiential wisdom and not the kind of analytical wisdom that happens just in the mind. In, in thought, in the thought process. Each performs its own function and then establishes a balance with the opposite, with the other. And this is what is needed for our journey to liberation, our spiritual journey. So I'll, I'm going to weave in talking about them, how they come together and how they, on their own, Uh, we need to consider them and understand them. Because this understanding of them is a part of the spiritual faculties, is the wisdom part. It's understanding how they work. But unless we put them to work, unless we notice them and we become familiar with them, they don't really become our own. They're just outside of us. Generally speaking, it's said that faith provides the element of inspiration and aspiration for us. It steers the mind away from doubt, and it settles it in confidence into a path that we find is trustworthy. So we, uh, faith leads us in that direction. Anything we do needs some kind of faith. In this practice, we we enter this practice because we have some kind of faith that it will work, 
but we have to try it out in order to uh, really understand that, in, re- in order to uh, really embody that. Generally speaking, energy kindles the fire of sustained endeavor, and it's the antidote to laziness. If we're not energetic in our practice, then we become uh, just indolent and not really able, willing to do anything at all. We just uh, let others do it for us and kind of live in the light of others' achievements. And uh, we don't go by our own energy. And sometimes this happens when we, we have so much faith, for example, in someone who has achieved something, or apparently they have achieved something. Um, and we're just so willing to live in the light of that person's achievement. And we, this is how faith and energy connect up, that we just uh, allow ourselves to, um, to shine in somebody else's light, and not to put the energy in to try to experience, to understand for ourselves what that kind of freedom is all about that we think another person has. So it kindles the fire of sustained work on our own, with our own energy. Mindfulness, just a short one on mindfulness, contributes clear awareness to whatever is happening. Mindfulness is said to be like a mirror a clean mirror, that when it uh, reflects something, it reflects it without adding anything to it, without subtracting anything, without projecting anything. It just sees the experience as it is. And of course, mindfulness is made more and more powerful by these other faculties, as faith, uh, deep faith, and energy, the kind of sustained energy are developed so with concentration and wisdom, then uh, mindfulness becomes much more powerful. The antidote to to, uh, mindlessness and carelessness is mindfulness. With mindfulness, we stop taking anybody else's word for it, and we understand it for ourselves because of being mindful. We're not just mindlessly letting someone else do the work for us, so to say. It said that concentration, generally speaking, holds the beam of attention steady. And it may be, like in Vipassana, it holds the beam of attention steady enough for a moment to see, uh, to let mindfulness reflect what is happening in that moment. So concentration in terms of vipassana is on changing objects, on this momentary experience, on the changing objects that arise and pass away in our field of awareness. Of course, concentration can be used very steadily uh, for longer times, and where the development of deep states of concentration, or jhana, is developed. So you might say, generally, that concentration holds the beam of this energy, of this light, on the object of attention, either momentarily 
and on changing objects, or on one object for long periods of time, depending on what practice you're doing. If you're doing a, a samatha practice to develop jhanas, then it's that kind of concentration where it holds it for long periods of time on one object, like the breath, or a casina of light, a ball of light, um, or there are other many other uh, practices of concentration, about 40 of them. And then it's said uh, of concentration that concentration is the antidote to a dispersed mind, because when the mind is dispersed, it's not it's not gathered the energy and pointing it in one direction. It's just all over the place, very restless mind. A restless mind um, is, can, uh, makes a restless body, and a restless body makes a restless mind also. That's why we try to sit in stillness as much as we can. Stillness of the body conduces to stillness of the mind. The Buddha said that wisdom is a crowning virtue of all of these faculties. And wisdom uh, opens the gateway to the unconditioned, to that deep uh, knowledge that frees the mind from bondage to uh, not understanding. It, uh, wisdom is the light that uh, brings, dispels the darkness of ignorance, it is said. It lights up the truth. So on their own, those are the five, and generally speaking, that's what they do, but I'll get into each one of them with a little more detail. As they are in pairs, and how they help to balance each other, and just with our own common knowledge, understanding, with our own intelligence, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see this, that faith and wisdom balance our capacities for devotion and comprehension. Um, we need them both in order to walk on the path. In a way, you could say faith is the heart and wisdom is our intellectual knowledge. We need both of them. We need uh, a strong emotional balance, and we also need uh, a good enough uh, intellectual balance to, in order to get through on any path of life, and especially the spiritual, the spiritual path. We need that kind of balance between faith and wisdom. We also need the balance between energy and concentration. When uh, this balances our active exertion and our calm recollection, then it really opens us to the truth. It really helps us to look into that pond of the moment's experience, and that pond of the moment experiences, experience reflects the truth without any doubt at all in the mind. So balance is essential in our practice and in these ways of seeing how faith and wisdom, concentration and energy in our practice really need to be balanced. 
There's an analogy the Buddha gave for the qualities of faith and wisdom. He compared faith to a blind giant who meets up with a small, sharp-eyed, and crippled called wisdom. This is from the commentaries of the Buddhist teaching. The giant, faith, says to the sharp-eyed, cripple, uh, wisdom, I'm strong and can go fast, but I can't see where I'm going. And you're small and weak, but have sharp eyes. If you ride on my shoulders, together we can go far. Those are how the two come together. When I look at my own practice and uh, try to see what faith is, it, I don't need to read the commentaries or the, any teachings or the Buddhist teachings to see that faith is a quality of the heart. A lot of times, for me, this faith, just the faith to take a step to do something about something, uh, not even knowing whether it's going to turn out right, but just to take a step in one direction or another. Maybe it's blind faith. Maybe I don't know where I'm going, but at least it's a faith in some possibility can come out and help the, the cause, the predicament that I've been in. That that comes from the heart. It doesn't come, usually for me, it doesn't come from pondering the pros and cons of a situation. Um, lucky for me so far, it's been okay. There's been a lot of uh, leaps of faith, and sometimes I've leaped into some a mire of mud and had to get myself out, but um, it was something instead of drowning in my sorrows. It was, it was one thing that led to another. In the Buddha's teaching, when, it, when faith is talked about, it's usually talked about as faith in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. And I didn't have that when I uh, started out on the path. I didn't understand the teachings of the Buddha, which are about the Dhamma. That's the teachings of the Buddha. And, and the Dhamma stands alone without attributing it to any teacher, actually. Because the Dhamma is a truth, and the truth is a truth. It doesn't belong to anyone. It belongs to those who understand it, really. It said that uh, the Buddha did not discover the truth, but he uh, realized it for himself and brought it out into the world because at first, at first he embodied it in himself. Then he uh, talked about it and brought it out into the world, a path that leads to the end of suffering. So this is the Dhamma. And the Sangha, having faith in the Sangha, is really having faith in those who have uh, understood the truth for themselves to some degree. Sometimes we meet people, and they don't necessarily have to be in robes, which is traditionally when we talk about the Sangha, it means those who are in, in the robes, those monastics. But our teachers and even the Buddha in, in some writings and some teachings has said bhikkhus, those monastics, 
are uh, monks and nuns and lay people who are on a path to liberation. And those who have um, understood the path, who have realized the path for themselves, are part of the Sangha, part of those who have understood and realized. And we meet those people on the path. It may not be someone, like Manindra says, you don't recognize these people because they have a halo on their heads or because they're wearing a certain kind of robe or because they have light emanating from their bodies, but because basically they're kind and basically they carry the precepts of non-harming with them all the time. They're um, a bearer of the Dharma, of the truth in that way. And they're able to talk about the practice in ways that are very wise and uh, onward leading. And some are not able to talk about it, but they're also, they, they're also quite realized beings that are not able to expound on the Dhamma or the truth, but they embody it in their hearts. So I realized in the beginning for me that that, that faith was from my heart, and I didn't start with faith in the Buddha, in the Dhamma, in the Sangha. But first I had to understand uh, faith in myself, that I had to really develop that confidence in myself to be able to walk a path, any path, to a place of awakening, awakening to that truth. It's said that um, there are different kinds of faith. There is faith in a teacher, faith in a teaching, and faith in one's own ability. And it was easy for me in the past to have faith in a teacher, something outside of me, because I had confidence in what they embodied. And this was important on my path. And from what they embodied and what they taught, I could have faith in the teaching because I understood by what they taught and what I maybe heard or read from many teachers um, in this particular arena of the Dharma, then I could understand. And with that understanding, I could take those steps to um, have faith in myself. But a lot of the path for me has been really just having faith in the next step in that, okay, I, I can take this step with mindfulness. And I do have faith in mindfulness, in the teaching of mindfulness. That's where I started. That this being present in the moment can open to something. Because uh, with some wisdom, I could understand that this moment is the place where this opening to uh, and awakening to the truth can come. It can come only in this present moment. If I'm thinking about the past, it isn't there. That's old, and that may not be true anymore. If I'm thinking about the future, of how I would like it to be for my practice, for myself, for opening, that may not be true either. It, it's just sometimes wishful thinking. But only in this moment can there be an opening to the truth. 
So I had, you could say, I had trust in that. I had faith in that. In Pali, the word faith is sada, and it means to place your heart upon. And there I could place my heart upon, my heart upon the fact and that deep understanding that only in this moment can this awakening be uh, experienced and embodied in, in this mind and body. And so with every step, with every breath, with every time the uh, attention went away from the breath, there was this faith to be present, and that's what it took. But faith is not enough. As, it, as they say to Utejaniya says, mindfulness alone is not enough. It really takes wisdom. It takes the wisdom that the mindfulness opens to when there is a presence of mind. So where, you st- where you're starting is up to you, is only what you know. Do you start with faith in yourself? Do you start with faith in a teacher? Do you start with faith in a teaching? That's how it came to me, uh, just having faith in mindfulness itself and then going from there. It wasn't necessarily having faith in the Buddha or having faith in the Dharma. I come from a Christian tradition, and I still have, I feel a lot of devotion to that in a way. And I also have understood that this path to awakening was clearly shown by a human being like myself called the Buddha 2,500 years ago. And so I've come to have faith in the Buddha and in the teachings of the Buddha. I don't feel that the Buddha is my savior, though. I feel that the Buddha, as another human being, showed the way. And it was my own energy and wisdom and concentration and um, concentration and mindfulness that showed the way. Faith, also. You could say that they were my inner teachers. And that's what uh, showed the way to me. It's said also about faith that there are different kinds of faith. And you might also want to track where you've been in your own spiritual journey. There's blind faith. There's bright faith. Then there's mature bright faith. Then there's verified faith, which quickly leads to what is called unshakable faith. So in blind faith, this is when, like it says, we're just following blindly because someone else or a lot of other people are doing it. But sometimes this is necessary to get us on the right track. And we might be following someone else or a group in this way, but it leads us to another place. Um, maybe it leads us to ourselves eventually, which is what this is all about, actually. Um, but blind faith is, uh, when we do it for too long, it's really misplacing our trust. It's not putting the trust where 
the trust is really uh, where it's trustworthy. It's when we are not really investigating for ourselves, but when we're just taking someone else's word for it and not seeing for ourselves. Uh, I love this term in Pali that I would hear Manindra say, one of our teachers say over and over again, ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself, ehi pasiko. When someone would be saying something about they doubt this and they doubt that and what if and like that, he would just shrug his shoulders and he wouldn't try to proselytize or anything. He would just say, ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself. Investigate for yourself. He would say to me over and over, don't take anyone's word for it. Don't even take my word for it. And I heard from him for the first time and read since then many times the Kalama Sutta, the Sutta, this is a teaching of the Buddha that he gave when he talked about a group of people from uh, an area in India and they were called the Kalamas and they approached the Buddha and they said that many uh, people come through this area. It's like Maui in Marin County. Um, <laughs> many people come through the area saying this and that about, you know, this is the path and this is the way and I am the way and, you know, look at my light and all of that. And uh, who should we follow? The Kalamas asked the Buddha. There are many people that expound many things and they talk about how it's written down for uh, thousands of years in their teaching and, and how they have this powerful teacher and um, how many, they have many followers. And the Buddha said something like this, I'm not quoting exactly, but he said, do not follow just because a person, a teaching, there are many followers in a particular teaching. Or do not take uh, a, the word of a person who seems very powerful, or from a book that was written thousands of years ago that people still are following, or because so many great people have said so, that this is right, this is the way. But follow something only because you see from your own experience, is this the right way? Does it lead to the end of suffering? or does it lead to more suffering? Does it lead to harmony, or does it lead to more harm with yourself and with the world? And so in that sutta, the Buddha asked to investigate for oneself, to not take anyone's word for it. So this is a, that's about blind faith, when you follow in that way, when you basically, you're really not investigating for yourself. You just sort of don't have the energy to do that and you just let other people do the work for you. But then in our lives we come upon what is called bright faith. And maybe one of those readings or one of those people um, that we find as a bright light uh, inspires us but not inspires us in a way in which we say, okay, 
you just, um, I, I'm happy enough to let you just do the work and for me just to agree with you. But it inspires us in such a way that we begin to reflect for ourselves, oh, maybe also my own heart and mind can realize that. So this is a great inspiration to oneself in this bright faith. For some people it comes from actually being in a place like this, being out in nature, being next to the ocean, uh, hearing a bird song, something quite natural like that. We hear about it in, in a lot of um, the teachings of many of the saints in the Buddhist tradition, and I come from a Catholic tradition, so I've read a lot about that, where people, um, great women that I've read about, have just been so inspired by being in nature. Bright faith from that, by seeing someone who has really accomplished something of their own heart, and seeing that, oh, that's, that's what I would like to do for my own heart. And it's not about that person. It's about yourself in this bright faith. So you, you start um, placing that faith where it belongs, in your own heart, in this bright faith. Maybe it's inspired by something out there, but really you're, you're taking that and you're putting it here in your own heart. And then as we practice on our own, it's this uh, what we call mature bright faith. We begin to see for ourselves and we begin to understand for ourselves, oh, that's what that person was talking about. When we heard a haiku about nature and we said, oh, now I understand that for myself. We see and understand something about impermanence or the impersonal nature of reality, or the unsatisfactory nature, how there's nothing to hold on to that we can hold on to for a long period of time that's going to give lasting happiness. We start seeing that all that is true and verifying that for ourselves. So this is what is called uh, mature bright faith. And when that happens, those, those kinds of insights come into the nature of reality more and more often, more and more um, strongly. And it begins to dispel our doubt about any of those realities, about the reality of impermanence, the reality of the impersonal nature of life, the unsatisfactory nature of life then it becomes verified faith. And maybe we get bits of verified faith here and there. Maybe it's not the whole of our practice or the whole of our life, but there are uh, certain times of our practice where we've seen through the illusion of permanence or the illusion of self, and we understand more deeply. And we know that we're not seeing that all the time. But the possibility for seeing that totally and uh, all the time is there. So this becomes, when this happens, when the mind and heart have thoroughly investigated, it, has, it becomes unshakable faith. When there is unshakable faith in the efficacy of the Four Noble Truths, um, 
that many of you have heard over and over from Steve, but if you haven't, I don't know if he'll give it this retreat, but um, when we understand the Four Noble Truths, when we are the bearers of the Four Noble Truths. So this is faith and how we understand it in ourselves and why we are here, because we are investigating for ourselves, not taking anyone's word for it. So the other side of that is wisdom. Wisdom as intellectual knowledge, as book knowledge, as heady knowledge, so to say, is excellent, it's good, it's praised by the worthy. Um, But if that's all we have, then we're not having the kind of experiential heart view of it when there's not faith we don't have really the faith to take the step and to investigate for ourselves. We just leave it in our heads as intellectual knowledge. Then this is not really leading to the end of suffering. It's actually leading us to kind of chase our tail like a dog chasing one's tail where uh, we can get intoxicated on this kind of knowledge and it becomes like pleasurable for a moment, but then it's really unsatisfying. And then we go after it again because we don't have enough faith to do our own practice. So we keep going after this intellectual knowledge, reading a lot, taking it in that way, which is good too. But too much intellectual knowledge can lead to what um, they say is cunning. We can talk ourselves out of practicing because we don't need to, we think. We understand it all. Um, So without this balance of faith and uh, the part of wisdom that that can know the way through direct investigation, without this balance we're either going blindly with blind faith or we're heading in the direction of pure intellectual knowledge. And either one by itself is not enough. We need the balance of both. When I first started in practice, I I am by um, anybody's view who has been in the Dhamma and the teachings of the Buddha for any time would know me as a faith-based person. A faith-based a person isn't, doesn't put too much um, of my, uh, I don't put too much effort in heady knowledge. It's, it can come to me, I can learn it, I can put it together, but it's mostly by investigating through taking that step, taking that breath, being mindful of it, and seeing for myself. Uh, It's said that of these faith-based people, they're they're usually in the Buddhist personality types, they're usually the greedy type, which uh, Steve will attest to, that (laughs) I go after pleasant experiences all the time. He's the aversive type, so um, we teach each other a lot uh, about 
each other's ways. And so the greedy nature goes out after things that are unprofitable. But a faith-based person, which through practice I see that my um, the energies of the mind and the body are headed more towards, go after things that are spiritually profitable, like being among those who uh, have embodied the truth, hearing the Dharma, practicing things that bring uh, more faith, more understanding, like generosity, practicing metta. And so both have the tendency to kind of go towards something. And a faith-based person would go towards that which is spiritually profitable, spiritually beneficial for oneself and others. So having the balance between the two, understanding what they are and uh, being on the path uh, of the spiritual path will help us to know where our strengths are and where our weaknesses are. Because my strength is mostly inherently in faith, when I first started out in the practice, Manindra said, don't read anything, just practice because he knew that that's where the understanding would come most naturally for me. So for a long time, I didn't read anything, not much. I read a little, the basic things in the beginning. But I mostly just practiced. And then later on, I began to read. And what the reading did later, what the studying did, what the intellectual knowledge of the Dhamma did was verify experiential understanding. And of course, my path isn't finished, so there's more uh, knowledge experientially to be gained, but uh, that's how it happened for me. But for some people, it's helpful to start with the intellectual knowledge. Book knowledge inspires people. It uh, brings interest to practice more and to experience it more. So one is not better than the other. It's just important to know what is the type that uh, your mind and body are with at this moment, and to nurture that, but to know when you're going overboard and when you're not feeding one that needs to be fed. So now energy. Um, in the Buddhist teaching, this energy and effort is talked about as the four great efforts, but I'm just going to be, I'm just going to put it very simply. It's really the energy and the effort to be with the present moment. Sometimes, you know, we start out with our practice and our hair's on fire. You know, we have that kind of like faith in the Dharma or in the truth or in our ability to like Steve said last night, that he was absolutely sure that he would reach the end of suffering in this lifetime. And well, we'll see who gets there first. <laughs> Faith <laughs> or wisdom. <laughs> but really, we both, uh, I can say that we have, each of us have a different balance, but 
in my own balance, there is a balance of faith and wisdom. And in Steve's, he has a balance of faith and wisdom. He can expound on, uh, on the wisdom part, actually, with a lot more ease than I can. I, I talk about the Dharma with a lot of personal experience, but um, I learn a lot from Steve and what he understands of the Dharma through his uh, book knowledge and his experiential knowledge. So this is the energy to be with the present moment. And sometimes when we start out in practice, what we want to do is to be enlightened, you know, and really we're way ahead of ourselves. And, uh, and to be enlightened, there is no self anyway. So, you know, we're really nowhere when we want to do that. <laughs> so uh, to be with the present moment, we can see in our practice over the years, many of you have been practicing for many, many years. In this room alone, there are hundreds of years of practice when we all put it together. So um, when we can be with the present moment, this is where the truth is to be known. This is where the awakening happens in this present moment. It takes mostly mental energy to do that. It just takes that kind of energy, that momentary energy. For example, when we give the instructions in the morning and we say, bring the attention, bring all of your attention to the in-breath. And your, your attention for that moment, because it's guided, or maybe you guide yourself sometimes, you bring the attention to the in-breath, and for that moment, it just takes a little energy. And we see that we're right there. The experience of bringing the object and the mindfulness of the object together happens. It just takes that much energy. But mindfulness is this continuity of energy remembering to be mindful over and over and over and over again. So this is the kind of energy it takes, that kind of continuous energy to be mindful. And the effort, um, when effort is talked about in these teachings, it's the effort to arouse a wholesome uh, frame of mind a wholesome mental state that has not yet arisen. Or if a wholesome mental state has already arisen, it's to nurture that wholesome state that's already arisen. So there are these two kinds of energies with regards to wholesome states. With regards to unwholesome states, there are two kinds of effort and energy also. It's the energy to dispel or counteract uh, an unwholesome state that has already arisen. And if an unwholesome state hasn't arisen yet, then it's to prevent that wholesome state, unwholesome state, from arising. I'll just give one example. Like when we're doing metta, and we sit down and do metta, and we pretty much have a neutral frame of mind. When we do metta during that time, we are preventing unwholesome states from arising. So this is energy. Mostly it's a kind of determination, an unwavering determination. 
it's different from faith, really. Um, it's a different kind of energy from faith. It's mental energy, it's physical energy to be with the present moment. Sometimes this kind of energy is called samvega. It's a spiritual urgency. And this spiritual urgency, each of us has that to some degree, or else we wouldn't be here. It's a spiritual urgency to open to something freeing that we haven't experienced before. Or maybe to reopen to something that we have experienced before that has been so beneficial for us on our path, on our spiritual path. It doesn't have to be Buddhist or from the teachings of the Buddha. It can, it can come from all sides, from anywhere. So this samvega, or this spiritual urgency, you may investigate or you may ponder on how did it come to you? Not necessarily take a whole sitting to do that, but, uh, but to understand what brought you here in the first place? What brought you to the spiritual path? So for me in the beginning, it was because there was so much suffering. And that's what brings most people to the spiritual path. Maybe we're on the spiritual path already, but kind of a deeper suffering, a more powerful suffering, forces us to go more deeply, to be more committed to our path. When I was, a long time ago, I was in the Philippines, and I came to a place in my life where I had to leave the Philippines alone with three children, leaving the the family and my um, then husband behind because of certain conditions. And I came, I was married into a very wealthy family and I was among very poor people in the Philippines. And being among the poor and seeing all the suffering that was happening there, and also connecting with my own suffering of um, the, su- the personal suffering of relationship and then the, the prospect of having to raise my three children on my own, leaving the country without any uh, help. That was, that was a lot of suffering for me. And I really began to open at first to uh, the Catholic tradition that I was already in. I did a lot of novenas. For those of you who don't know about novenas, they're prayers, the same prayers over and over and over again. The rosary over and over and over again. I developed, uh, you know, the mind developed a lot of concentration doing that. That was part of the path. Um, When I'm around spiritual deities of the Catholic tradition, especially the women, I feel filled with faith. And it still fills me with faith. Um, So it it doesn't have to be in any one tradition, just knowing that what certain women got through, whether they're saints or sinners, uh, so to say, you know, what they got through inspires me because of their uh, energy that they took on the path their spiritual urgency. And then because of that, 
I um, came to the Dharma because I was in America raising three children on my own and I needed some silence so I went to a silent retreat it was the only one that I could find and it was in the Buddhist tradition and it was a weekend retreat so then I opened to the Dharma in that way and I added that to my um, where my faith uh, was directed so Uh, that spiritual urgency opened to me in that way. When when I started practicing and I saw the suffering in this fathom-long body here, uh, in this mind and body, that opened me to even more faith in the Dharma and more energy to go towards uh, coming to the end of suffering there. But sometimes it can be too much energy, and we strive, we overstrive, and uh, we become restless in that. So many of you maybe have realized that because we, you come with an agenda sometimes in your practice, and you're not really being with the present moment, and you're striving so hard, and the, and the mind is so tight, and we're not so relaxed, that um, this kind of uh, energy and effort doesn't lead us anywhere. And so we need the balance of concentration. And this concentration brings a calmness to the mind. It uh, brings that dispersal of the mind to a one-pointedness. So we have this energy within the one-pointedness of the mind. That energy is kind of directed and directed to the moment's experience of concentration and the next moment of experience and then the next moment of experience. So when we don't have that concentration, we're just all over the shop. Concentration really helps us to uh, calm the mind, to direct the mind, uh, to unify the mind, but if there's too much concentration and not enough energy, there's what is called sloth and torpor. Too much energy, restlessness. Too much concentration, sloth and torpor, or sleepiness. And so we need to know, to know where we're lacking, where there's too much. And in your reporting, you can talk about this, um, especially these two, how your energy is, how your concentration is. and we may give you um, recommendations on how to balance that out, where you need to add a little more energy, where you need to be a little more concentrated because of restlessness, for example. So the balance of the two, very, very important. When these faculties become powers, they result in meditative absorption. Uh, For example, uh, when concentration becomes a power in and of itself, then uh, the jhanas can be experienced, the deep meditative absorptions. When wisdom becomes a power, it means insight into the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and the selfless nature of all phenomena. 
And when faith turns into power, it also manifests as one example, as the four immeasurables, or the four Brahma-viharas, loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. When mindfulness becomes a a power, it brings us to see all the four foundations of mindfulness, which we are giving you instructions in every morning. It comes to see all of those clearly and to see the truth in all of those four foundations of mindfulness. So these are how the five faculties balance each other out. They empower each one. They give us a harmony in our practice, harmony in our daily life. They uh, develop to such a place that it powerfully brings us to the end of suffering when they're in great balance. So, mindfulness, and then the other two are faith and wisdom and concentration and energy. These are the five faculties that become the five powers. So let's sit for a moment. 